Welcome to the Unforgettable Conversations podcast, where every week I introduce you to people from all walks of life, from experts in their fields to ordinary people who have had extraordinary lives. I'm your host, Sandy McKenna. In part one of this conversation, I'm talking with John Lewis. He's the co-author of It's All About Food, and for many years he was the resident chef on the nationally syndicated daytime show. But while we both share a passion for all things culinary, that's not what we're talking about today. John and I also have something else in common. We've both lost our only child, mine to an accident, and his to suicide. In this episode, John takes us through his unimaginable journey from life as a single dad during his son's early years to the relationship as adults and the fateful middle-of-the-night call that changed everything. Now let's get this conversation started. I had lost a daughter, and I think there's nothing more difficult to say it, or I can be more empathetic to, is somebody who's lost their child. And once you get that call, John, what happens? Where do you go from there? I mean, it's nothing but despair at that moment. I don't usually answer phone calls at 1.30 in the morning, but I answered it on February 4th in the early morning hours from an unknown number in uh, Miami where my son was living, and it was a detective on the line. And he identified himself and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your son is deceased. Of course, the shock of that, I mean, I I didn't believe it at first. I said, who is this? I mean, how do I know? Was uh, foul play involved? No. It appears that it was a suicide and he did leave a note. So at that point began a whole series of emotions, grief, anger, and questioning. Take me back to the beginning, John. I'd love to learn more about Mike. What was his life? What was life like for you when he was growing up? Mike was born in December of 1969. My wife and I had already separated. I was not living in the same town anymore. I would go back to visit him uh, monthly, every other month, and so on from baby on. And then in February of 1992, Yeah, he was two years old and a couple of months. His mother brought him to visit me. I was living in Connecticut at that time and said that she had decided that I would be a better single parent than her. And that was really groundbreaking, really unusual back then, because there weren't at the time a lot of single dads. When he first came to live with me, you remember that movie, Kramer versus Kramer? I remember it well. Meryl Streep, Dustin Hoffman, and me sobbing in the movie theater. A really emotional movie, taking a deep dive and looking at divorce and parenting at the time. I went to see that movie. I thought, oh my God, that's me. You know, (laughs) I was fortunate enough that that I had my son with me and it was his mother's decision. I mean, divorce in those days always ended up with the mother getting custody and you didn't really question it. I mean, that's just the way it was. It was her decision that she felt I would be a, a better single parent. I think her words were. And of course, that had to do with what was going on in her life. I mean, raising an infant was not an easy thing, certainly without a a second parent being there. So yeah, it was uh, interesting times. So Mike came to live with me and I raised him. It's just an incredible child, just extremely bright, very outgoing, very energetic through school, through coaching little league, through, you know, 
soccer. I had no, no idea what, anything about soccer, but anyway, I learned enough, I guess, to be a passable uh, coach. And we stayed in Connecticut until the uh, early 80s. And we moved then to California. He entered high school and proceeded to change his name. He was born Joshua Michael Lewis. He wanted to drop the Joshua and just become Mike Lewis because that was a more common name for whatever reason. Anyway, he became Mike Lewis at that point. Then until his uh, senior year in high school, we were living in uh, Southern California, San Diego. I got a job that took me to Europe. And I left and hired a full-time live-in to take care of him. I was in Europe then for two years. He came over to visit once or twice. And towards the end of my time in Europe, I was then living in Paris. He got in trouble, some serious trouble with the law, having to do with marijuana, fairly large quantity. We hired a lawyer for him. I came back from over there. He had had several very difficult uh, periods in his um, early uh, 20s, both with drugs and the law, and then ultimately with, with alcohol, and uh, worked his way through all that. And that old expression pulled himself up by his mental bootstraps. He wound up graduating with honors from the University of Cincinnati and uh, was on sort of the right road. He was bilingual at that point, Spanish speaker, and then moved to Mexico became the assistant country manager for the YMCA based in uh, Tijuana and actually counseled immigrant children who had uh, been turned back at the uh, border. After that, he went back to uh, Cincinnati and began a corporate career. We remained in touch and would see each other frequently, but I didn't really see him continuously until he moved to Miami at the end of 2018. And I'm in Dunedin, and he's in Miami, and we're a lot closer. And he would come very frequently. In the last uh, six months of his life, he was up here probably uh, every weekend. We'd always been close, but this was the first time since he was very young that we actually saw each other that frequently. So the phone call and his uh, suicide came as a tremendous shock. I mean, it's one thing I think maybe to lose a, a child to uh, in any loss of any child is horrible, as you said, and I agree. But in, in some ways, suicide raises other issues that have to do with, I should have seen the signs, uh, regret, uh, blaming myself uh, for not seeing the signs. And that was, that was a very difficult uh, time for me. As they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. But were there signs, John? Uh, I don't know that I would even know what to have looked for. I've really tried to uh, be disciplined about blaming myself versus, you know, trying to look at signs. The signs had to do with he was working uh, very intense. He was he was working remotely. He had become quite an expert in the uh, IT area. He was employed by a company out of uh, Chicago, and uh, they said he could move any place he wanted. And he'd always wanted to live in Miami, primarily because of the Spanish connection and all that. So he chose uh, Coconut Drove. He was very, very busy and could hardly talk sometimes on the phone. And when he came up to visit earlier in late 2018, he was always on the computer. And then all of a sudden, 
around Thanksgiving of that year, he came up and he spent at least a week or so and didn't seem to be on the computer very much. He always had his laptop there. And I questioned him, you know, what's, what's going on? Well, I'm on vacation. And he left a suicide note, two notes, one on Facebook to the world. And in that, he was, he was very affected by Anthony Bourdain's uh, suicide. And he referenced Bourdain in that uh, posting. And he then said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have that note, at least access to it. Those of us who suffer from suicide sickness hide it from everybody else, including themselves. So he was very adept at sidestepping questions from me about he was drinking more. And I noticed that. And he was like not working as much. And he had more free time. And he sidestepped it. He gave me, a, I guess, I took it as, well, okay, he got me off his back. But that was definitely a sign, you know? It was a sign, but it was so subtle, easy to miss. Well, it was because my kid had always been a heavy drinker, but not to the point of losing his job or anything. He'd gone through that period years ago. So yeah, he, he put a very willing dad to sleep on the concerns that I was having about what was going on in his life. Mike had left my name and phone number and his mother's name and phone number and other information on the, on the note that he left by his body. And the detective said, would you like to call his mother or do you want us to call her? Now, his mother and I had been estranged from even having much of a conversation for years. But at that point, I said, no, I have to call her. Uh, so I did. And she broke down, as I did, uh, on the phone. And we then decided that we would talk again the next day uh, about, well, what next? You know, how do we, how do we deal with this, the, this sort of final details? I mean, this is new ground for me. I've had people that I was close to die before and make arrangements for the funeral home and so on. And if you have a wake or whatever, but, you know, none of that was going to happen. He had many Facebook friends and they reached out to me. One of them had said he left this message on Facebook, which I referenced before about suicide sickness. And, and then the network set up a memorial, memorial page on Facebook to Mike Lewis at that point. His mother and I decided that we had to go to Miami for the final arrangements, so to speak. He had a friend that offered to help navigate all the gory details, including the medical examiner and getting a death certificate and all this, all this sort of awful stuff. So I spent that week in kind of a fog. She wanted to actually see him. I did not. So she did, I think. Must have been awful. I decided I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to have my last visual memory of him. He actually used a pistol and shot himself in the head. So it's kind of funny, Sandy. He had told me like months before he actually got a pistol, and this is another sign. And I said, well, why would you do that? He's living in a very secure, high-rise, uh, very expensive condo building in Coconut Grove. And he was very upset about Trump and the whole thing that was going on nationwide. And you never know, we may be headed to civil war, and I wanted to be able to defend myself. And it just didn't ring right, but I didn't pursue it. So there's another sign, another missed uh, sign. So we got through that week, and then after that, I came back here. His mother took care of making the arrangements that she did. She did include me in the decisions that needed to be made. 
She's got the certified copy of his death certificate, which is, uh, you know, you're reading about your son's death, right? She convinced the authorities down there not to put the cause of death as, uh, as suicide. She wanted to protect his, in her, in her words, she wanted to protect his memory. I had no problem in dealing with close friends of mine all new, and I had no problem in saying that that's what it was. I don't have trouble saying suicide. I don't say death. I mean, it was a suicide. I mean, it's a particular way to die. I'm not trying to shock anybody, but it's, it's something that I found enables me to deal with it a little better because he died by suicide. So then it then began a series of weeks and months as the grief takes hold, the guilt takes hold. I was counseled by friends to, you know, don't blame yourself. Easier said than done. John, how did you deal with the aftermath of your son's suicide? Did you go to therapy? Did you talk to somebody who had experienced the loss of loved one to suicide? I can't even imagine where you begin. My heart goes out to you. How do you heal from such a traumatic event in your life? Well, of course, you never get over it. I mean, I, I have healed somewhat. I've come to terms with not blaming myself so much. I, I did not seek therapy, although a, a minister that I knew fairly well offered to talk anytime I wanted. I thought about that. I didn't feel I wanted to do that. I have a very dear friend, and she's my business partner and probably the closest person to me you know, in the world. My parents are both gone. My brother's gone. I'm pretty much the last one of my family. I've got some cousins around the country, but it's me. And my wonderful dogs, I have to say. And actually, one of them was a dog that Mike had talked himself into getting a pet about six months before this suicide because he was kind of lonely. And I said to him about, why don't you think about getting a dog? And he, he went to an animal rescue place and he got this dog and he called me and he was very excited. He said, I got a dog. Keep in mind, he's in a high-rise condo that did allow dogs under 25 pounds. I said, what did you get? He said, a Dalmatian. I was like, a Dalmatian puppy. Whoa. High energy, right? Ensuing weeks after that, I think he got the dog in June or something of uh, 2018. During the ensuing weeks, it was becoming increasingly impossible. So I said to him, well, I have two dogs here. Why don't you bring her up? And I'll take care of her for a while because he was complaining about, you know, work and so on. So anyway, that turned out to be, uh, well, he's yours. Um, and she, her name is Heidi. She's very uh, sweet. She's very affectionate. And she was a kind of a palliative. I mean, she was a great comfort to me because it was a connection to Mike. In the first couple of weeks after I came back from Miami, he reached out to me one time in a dream where he told me that he was okay, uh, that I was not to worry. And I felt his presence. And then a couple of other times I would leave and I have an automatic garage door like a lot of people do. And I put the garage door down, I come back, the garage door's up. That happened on a couple of occasions in the immediate weeks after I got back from Miami. And I did feel it was a sign in a way. Skeptics could probably say, well, you forgot, if, you know, it didn't go down or whatever. But no. I have um, very strong feelings about the subconscious and the spiritual world. I'm not necessarily religious, but I'm a fairly spiritual person. 
And I felt a great connection. I felt signs coming from him. And I told some friends, the casual social friends in my circle, and they were all, of course, comforting. And that had a certain amount of cathartic appeal. I, I think the healing that finally happened was in the beginning of 2020. I got a poem from somebody, and I have it here in front of me. If you wanted me to read it to you, I'd be happy to. But it's it really helped me move on. Yes, by all means, John, please. It's probably well known. I don't know the source, and I don't remember who gave it to me. But it says, miss me, but let me go. Which was kind of what I was trying to do at that point. I needed to let it go. So it goes as follows. When I come to the end of the road and the sun has set for me, I want no rights in a gloom-filled room. Why cry for a soul set free? Miss me a little, but not for long, and not with your head bowed low. Remember the love we once shared. Miss me, but let me go. For this is a journey we all must take, and each must go alone. It's all part of the master's plan and a step on the road home. When you are lonely and sick at heart, go to the beaches we know, bury your sorrow among the palms. Miss me, but let me go. And I did, but I did let him go. Wow, that's beautiful and very therapeutic. I, I think whoever gave this to me, and as I, I have a walk about how I got it, maybe I read it online or maybe somebody sent it to me, I'm not really sure. But I feel like sometimes, Sandy, in life, people come into your life for a brief, brief period of time and they're, they're there to give you a message. And then there are people that are in your life that stay for long periods of time. And then there are other people that become part of your life. And whoever this was, the messenger appeared at the right time and gave me the right uh, message. So many people have had terrible losses in one way or another. And when that happens, somehow you have to find some kind of perspective. Is there anything, John, that you would tell anyone that came to you and said, oh, this just happened, or I've had this loss, and I don't know what to do. What kind of advice would you give them? First, I would say, let yourself grieve. It's uh, normal. It's cathartic. Share it as you see fit, because sometimes close people can help. Their empathy and their uh, comfort is invaluable. His friends who reached out to me over the immediate months after the suicide were a great, uh, great source of, I knew Mike, and this is what I knew about Mike. And they were a great source of, there, there are things you don't ever see about your kids that his friends see or your friends see. So that was very helpful. So I would say to people, I don't mean this to sound, this sounds kind of like macabre, but get into the grief, let it wash over you. Let the emotions come forward. Don't bury it. I was told, don't blame yourself. You will blame yourself. There's just no way around that. There's signs and signals that you should have seen, and that's probably true. But I remember what he said in his uh, suicide note, and that is those of us who suffer from suicide sickness, he called it, are very adept at hiding it from all those around them and from themselves. And I think that's true of people in general, Sandy. You don't really know what's going on inside. I think it empowers you to be empathetic, to be kind, less judgmental. If there was something I would wish for myself that in terms of my own character, 
And that would be to just stop being judgmental. You don't know what somebody else is going through. Feel the emotions and let them come out. And then, and then as you get beyond it, I mean, the old story, time heals, is definitely true. Certainly the pain of the memory lessens. It's not as immediate. As you then proceed, then you've got to find a way to make it okay in your, in your head. After you get through the grief and the guilt, you have to put that someplace. You have to put a perspective on it. Maybe some people would choose to, to get counseling, and you know, I totally respect that. And if that's what you feel the need to do, and you have somebody who's really uh, a, a good listener and a good counselor, that's great. I didn't choose to go that path. I tended to work my way through it myself, and it turned out okay. And then once I got to the miss me, but let me go, uh, that was kind of an epiphany in a way, Sandy. I mean, it was like, yeah, you know what? I'm always going to miss him, but I've got to let him go. I mean, he is gone to a different plane, perhaps. Um, I do believe that, you know, that we, we have an eternal life. I do believe that we will see each other again spiritually. And I take comfort in that. It's not necessarily a religious thing. It's just, uh, I, I just think that's, you know, in my view, it's the only thing that makes sense about this whole insanity called uh, human life, you know? <laughs> So I moved into that phase. It's kind of interesting when I reached out to you, I could not have had this conversation with you a year ago, but I was at the point that, well, maybe, and I left it up to your judgment, obviously, maybe what I experienced and how I dealt with it, maybe it would help someone else. I think hearing other people's stories is so cathartic, knowing that we're not alone or feeling despair by ourselves, that somebody else has experienced something similar to what we've gone through is so healing and so powerful. I know I always found that to be a real comfort. It's been very comforting to me to have this conversation. I couldn't have had this conversation a year ago, but I'm at a place now where I can have this conversation and, and hope that other people might take some, uh, comfort in it. It's an absolute journey to get through grief. And John had walked through it with such grace and under such unimaginable conditions. This has really, truly been an unforgettable conversation. And I thank you so much for being so open and so generous in this conversation. In the next episode, part two of my conversation about suicide, I talked to Marcy Wise, a licensed mental health counselor and author. We talk about signs to look for. If you see them, what should you do? And if you don't see them, or if you have a loved one that committed suicide, how do you cope? If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, there is hope and there is help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a suicide prevention network that provides help to anyone in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Calls are free and confidential. The number is 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255.